So um, the temptation as these events get underway uh, is to make it a kind of ambulatory um, uh, discussion of, of, by everybody uh, with everybody. And uh, but I want to I want to press us along. And uh, now we move to the second. Um, uh, to the second of our Mount Rushmore protagonists, uh, uh, Mr. Jefferson, who interestingly would not have been in Mount Rushmore in the uh, 19th century when he was thought of as a kind of a, 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 a of an unrealistic visionary, nor perhaps by the end of the 20th century when issues of, of Ms. Hemings and slavery and so on came uh, came to the fore, which is a reminder of how how often these, and regularly these figures uh, require analysis and reanalysis. The basic presentation by Barbara Oberg uh, is by someone who, who lives in the Jefferson uh, uh, legacy. The, she is the editor of the Jefferson Papers and, uh, uh, and is at this very point, it, in the midst of the documentation of the Jefferson presidency with much, much material that has not been available uh, uh, in the past. So it'll be very interesting to see what slice of that we get, uh, we get from Barbara. Peter Onuf, who was to be here, uh, uh, had, um, uh, I think, transient, I hope transient health problem. And uh, Jan Lewis is going to read his very uh, focused and lively comments. And the third commentator, uh, uh, Michael Knox Barron, is the author of still another book that I will be happy to promote uh, with the enticing title, Jefferson's Demons. And it presents a very complex and interesting Jefferson. So proceed, Barbara. And tell me, are you hearing now? Okay. What we have to do is speak toward this mic. The room is very oddly amplified, and there's a kind of a dead spot around the, the first two rows. All right, then let, let me know if you, if you don't hear. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Fred for organizing this and Reggie. I'd like to, uh, since Fred said that we're all pushing to have more time than we're supposed to, I only want to point out that Jefferson had two terms as president. <laughs> Enough said. Um, I also I, I, I want to tell you that the kind of work I do, scholarship I do, is very much a collaborative effort. And so it isn't just Barbara who is doing the Jefferson Papers. There are six of us from the Jefferson Papers, Martha King, John Little, Jim McClure, Linda Monaco, and Elaine Pascu, and they're here, and they ought to be thanked. The second next group is a man who really knows uh, the presidency as much as Fred Greenstein. He teaches the history of the presidency, and that's Perry Level, who's the William R. Keenan Professor of History at Drew University, and without him, I would know nothing about the presidency. I've titled my paper, Thinking Like a President, Thomas Jefferson and the Creation of a New Republican Order. The people are more moderate and susceptible of proper impressions, wrote John C. Ogden, an Episcopalian clergyman of Connecticut who graduated from the College of New Jersey, to Vice President Thomas Jefferson in February 1799. 
Within the same early days of that month, Jefferson was referring to the national political horizon as having gone through a wonderful and rapid change. The public mind would be, quote, returned to its Republican soundness if, he went on to say, the knowledge of facts can be only disseminated among the people. Two years later, February 17, 1801, that wonderful change was effected in the election of Jefferson as the nation's third president. This morning, I propose to use that wonderful and rapid change as the background for exploring the transformation of Thomas Jefferson into a chief executive. How did a long and varied career in the nation's service prepare him for executive leadership? How did the four years immediately before 1800 influence the election, the creation of a new government, and Jefferson's interpretation of the events? Jefferson had had a lot of experiences before coming to the presidency. He'd served in the House of Burgesses in Virginia. He had served in the Continental Congress. He'd served on a committee drafting the Declaration of Independence. He'd also been governor of Virginia, a, a not very... Now one of the high points in Jefferson's government service, uh, Benedict Arnold and British troops invaded the state. Jefferson flew, uh, leaving the silver buried behind at Monticello, so the story goes, by by slaves, uh, left Monticello and went off into his country retreat. So you might say that he didn't really have the temperament to be an executive, but, but in fact, all of this government service together taught Jefferson how to think like a president, how to work effectively with a cadre of executive officers when he participated in Washington's government as Secretary of State. Jefferson was asked by Washington because he'd been serving in France, because he was the most well-known of American statesmen at the time, besides John Adams, who was the vice president. The obvious choice for Secretary of the Treasury, of course, was Alexander Hamilton. Now, Jefferson, who distrusted executive power and told John Adams in 1787 that the president proposed by the new Constitution was a bad addition of a Polish king, echoing Gordon Wood last night, you'll find that this paper will have a lot of echoes because, in fact, even though we're talking about what seems a wide political spectrum, the language they use and the visions they hold are, are so very, very similar. Anyway, Jefferson, Jefferson worried uh, when he was in the cabinet. He, he fumed about monarchists, Tories, courtly trappings, British finance, and corruption. He sent impassioned letters to Washington, criticizing Hamilton's vision for the country. And at the same time, though, he understood, he came to appreciate how important it was to have a strong executive and how important it was for powers to be housed in the president to be able to govern the country effectively. While the very early years of Washington's administration saw a fair degree of harmony between the two men, by 1782, Hamilton and Jefferson were each seeking Washington's ear and politicking behind the back of the other. The president begged them to get along with each other, almost as though you would beg children in a family to get along. Try to understand him. Try to be nice. uh, Jefferson and Hamilton both received long letters from Washington trying to explain the point of view of the other. They, uh, on 
on their side begged Washington not to retire after one term because they could see if they were this divided, this was merely a reflection of a divided country. Political, political discourse became yet more acerbic in the final year of Washington's second term and under the Adams administration. Debates in Congress took place against a backdrop of bitter partisan rivalry, characterized most famously by the near brawl on the floor of the House of Representatives between Matthew Lyon and Roger Griswold after the Irish-born Lyon from Vermont spit in the face of the Connecticut Federalist Griswold. Jefferson referred to President John Adams' 19 March 1798 address to Congress as almost insane. The level of language and epithets was very high. Um, the vice president got so dismayed, disgusted by the Adams administration at the end, particularly in the summer of 1798, that he, but he simply left. He went home to Monticello. He left in June. Two days after he left, Adams signed the Sedition Act. For the next months, August, September, October, Jefferson was in retreat at Monticello. At the same time, he was very much thinking about what he could do to change the course which he felt was so wrong for the country. It was at this time that he penned the resolutions, which we now know is the Kentucky Resolutions. Jefferson didn't call them the Kentucky Resolutions. But he kept his authorship secret. This is the period of his life that Michael Barron talks about Jefferson's deepening sense of prophetic vocation. Jefferson was bothered, he was dismayed, he was irritated, he felt that he had to rise to the occasion from this whole troubled and I think really chaotic sense of where the country was going. Jefferson became starting startlingly and, as Michael says, almost demonically productive. There is a fever of writing pamphlets, of writing letters, of lashing out. He's at the same time working toward an ideology that was bec would become his Republican presidential creed. At the same time, Jefferson was beginning to grow more sophisticated in building a political party. For Jefferson, building a party and building the nation become basically the same thing. But he's still, he's still worried. He's worried about what the Federalists will find out about him and do to him. He's very circumspect. Uh, he decided at one point not to go stop and visit Madison because, as he said, that wretched little, that es the espionage of that little wretch in Charlottesville would make it a subject of some gossip. In January 1800, he reported to Monroe a conversation that he had had with number 113 because he was afraid to use the word Aaron Burr. That would show there was political conspiracy going on. In writing about the, the, the presidency, the American presidency, Yale political scientist Stephen Skoranek argues that John Adams's presidency ruptured the political regime and shattered the previously dominating dominant coalition. And it's true that however great in statesmen like Adams may have been in sending a second diplomatic mission to France, it's true that he divided his administration, intensified Alexander Hamilton's personal crusade to get him out of office, and provided abundant fodder for Jeffersonian Republican journalists to pillory. 
If, if Adams shattered the old regime, Jefferson's genius, genius was in forging a new regime. Politically astute, smart enough to learn from his close loss in 1796, and innovative and determined in his strategies to build a political network state by state, county by county, and person by person, Jefferson consciously became the leader of a political party. At the same time that he was doing this, he reached out to what he felt were reasonable Federalists. You know, there were Federalists and there were reasonable Federalists. <laughs> Elbridge Gary in Massachusetts was what he called a reasonable Federalist. And so Gary, who'd come back from France, um, he stayed longer and longer than the other uh, members of his commission to try to bring peace with France. He was criticized by the radical conservative Federalist when he came back, so Jefferson tried to reach out to him. Jefferson, Jefferson worked in 1800 in this election in a way that he didn't at all participate in 1796. He distributed political pamphlets. He took an active role in uh, publicizing the works of Thomas Cooper and Joseph Priestley, for example, on Republican political economy. He sent pamphlets to his son-in-law, to his father-in-law, to James Madison, to James Monroe, saying, send these out to bring the right-thinking people back into the Republican Party to get them to turn out for the election. Now, it seems to me that he began thinking more and more like a president uh, in, in 17, from 1796 on. And I'll tell you a little story that brings into sharp focus the difference between how he thought in 1800 and 1796. When Jefferson lost to John Adams in 1796 by about three votes, he, he wrote a letter December 28th, when he, when he found out that it was pretty certain that he'd lost, he wrote a letter to John Adams, a very moving, moving letter, and he said, basically, I'm really glad you won. Uh, you deserved to win. You're older than I am in experience and in a nation service, and I didn't really want to be president anyway. So, so congratulations. <laughs> but, but he must have known somewhere deep inside him that, that he ought to think twice about sending this letter. It isn't just that he thought twice. He sent it to Madison. He sent it to his other thinker, unsealed, uh, with a cover letter saying, tell me what you think about this letter to, to Adams. I, I want to be conciliatory. I want to think about almost a bipartisan government. And Adams, uh, Madison read it, respectfully returned it to, to Jeff, or kept it, did not send it on, and said, basically, you're out of your mind. Uh, we, you can't send a letter like that. In the first place, you have all these devoted followers who've been helping you in 1796, and, and we can't alienate them because there will be another election, and, and we want our followers to be, to be ready to carry the standard again. And secondly, you cannot leave a piece of paper in Adams' possession that can be brought out at the next election. You can't leave a paper trail. I mean, this is really, I think, an indication that Madison understood far more than Jefferson did, the nuances of politics and leadership. This is really, really a political primer for uh, becoming a president. 
But by the election of 1800, as I've said, Jefferson was much more active, much more willing to get involved. In 1796, for example, in, in editing his papers for that period, there is not one word from Jefferson's pen about the election going on. You can piece it together from his followers and from a series of certificates that were gathered for, for the uh, races for Virginia electors, but not from Jefferson. This isn't true in 1800. Well, the election of 1800 is really, really a series of critical elections uh, at the state level. It's not the big election that we think of. And, and Jefferson in first heard on De on, in December that the critical South Carolina votes had come in. From Columbia, South Carolina, the newspaper publisher Peter Freneau informed him that at 1 o'clock this day, the election for electors has concluded with eight votes for Jefferson, seven for Burr, and one for George Clinton. Now, you sharp people will already see there's a little problem with this. Uh, Jefferson endorsed that letter and, on, and noted it in his summary journal of letters on December 12th when he arrived, uh, received it. He also got one from Charles Pinckney with more details. Jefferson got very excited. He, he started writing immediately. I mean, he wrote to his daughter Martha first, he actually started answering some letters that had been sitting on his desk unanswered for months. It's, it's almost as though there's this flood of productivity now. Um, and, and he immediately, well, two days later, set about to plan his cabinet. And he sent, the first cabinet request went to Livingston, to Chancellor Livingston of New York, the inventor of the steamboat. And I think Jefferson's letter to him bears some discussion and analysis. It's masterful Jefferson, and it's the Jefferson that he uses to work with the Congress later. He wrote to Livingston, and he said, um, well, he started out just a little friendly letter. He didn't say, I want you to be in the cabinet. He said, um, he started talking about their common interests. Uh, your steam engine, I've been reading your letters on your steam engine. I'm fascinating, Je fascinated. Jefferson was interested in inventions. He appealed to their common membership in the American Philosophical Society. He talked about bones. Jefferson was interested in the megalonics. Bones had been found that he thought were the bones of a mammoth. So he builds a friendship. He builds a common ground for the two of them and then says, I'd like you to serve as Secretary of the Navy. Now, what is the connection between Livingston and the Navy? I mean, maybe that he invented the steamboat. He's, he's from New York. Um, but Jefferson pointed out the practical reasons for this. I need somebody who can understand the, the uh, Navy, but who's not enamored of navies, and who comes from a state that we need. So it's a marvelous blend of practicality, pragmatism, building a cabinet and building a party at the same time. And he next wrote to Madison, of course, though we think by, in conversation it had already been agreed that Madison would be Secretary of State. And he, and he sent uh, a confidential letter that saying, the man we have proposed for the tea has not arrived yet. I mean, the code, which is so obvious to everybody, that is Albert Gallatin, who would be the Treasury Secretary, was not in town. Um, not too many days later, it became clear that things had been badly mismanaged, as he wrote, uh, that votes would be equal. And so the election was not concluded 
but would have to go into the House of Representatives. So Jefferson went into a deep silence after this. No more letters asking people to serve in the cabinet. Um, you know, he just abandoned the whole effort for the time. He retreated to silence. He did no more planning, at least on paper, for the rest of his cabinet until 17 February, on the day the deadlock was broken in the House of Representatives. The news was announced by a dramatic broadside by ex 2 o'clock by express from the city of Washington, this moment the election is decided. That will be the first document in our volume 33, but you're getting an advance word here <laughs> that Jefferson won. And on my day-to-day -day basis, I, I just can't know that yet. <laughs> then the president-elect moved quickly. On the 18th, he wrote to Madison again. He went to Henry Dearborn of Massachusetts. He went to Levi Lincoln, also of Massachusetts, to become attorney general. Both of these appointments reflected Jefferson's good grasp of the importance of geographical geographical diversity and bringing into the Republican fold the New England states. Gallatin obviously was crucial because he understood finance and Hamiltonian finance. He was from Pennsylvania, an important state, and he had led the Republicans in the Congress after Madison had gone back to Virginia. The choice of men for the two most important government posts with whom he could work and with whom Jefferson felt personally comfortable was very much a mark of the way Jefferson chose to lead. Secure in their loyalty and ability, he could safely branch out to others like Dearborn and Lincoln, whom he did not know as well, but who filled important, if subordinate, niches in the overall plan. He made one important personal appointment, soliciting Meriwether Lewis, a distant cousin and future co-leader of the Lewis and Clark expedition, to become his private secretary. He offered him room and board, a small salary, which Jefferson paid out of his own pocket, and the chance to be one of my family, as he wrote to him. Jefferson's success with his cabinet was intensely personal. As political science like Richard Neustadt and Fred Greenstein have pointed out, a president's logic and charm can reinforce his formal authority and it's particularly an appropriate uh, description of Jefferson. By appointing department heads with whom he could feel comfortable and by capitalizing upon his towering public prestige and impressive personal professional reputation, Jefferson successfully forged personal allegiances. And I, I want to point out, too, and this is based on, on Gordon Wood last night. Gordon talked about the importance of Washington as being symbol of, of the new nation of, and of the leadership. Jefferson, in the months just before, in the four months just before the election of 1800, had his portrait painted four times. Um, he sat for his portrait for young Rembrandt Peel, who painted him in Philadelphia. Charles Peel Polk came to Monticello and in two days captured a likeness of him. Gilbert Stewart painted him and Edward Savage prepared a mezzotint. And these were copied and circulated widely as engravings, prints, frontispieces of notes on the state of Virginia. And I think this representation of Jefferson was an important and in symbolic part of the responsibility uh, as a leader of the people. Not, not the leader quite that Gordon described, but very much still the same leader. So to the public mind, in an age before photography, 
This was Jefferson, and Joanne Freeman has noted that too in her book, and that was a quote from her. With his cabinet established, Jefferson set out to lead, to become an effective chief administrator. Now, he had two models before him. He had the model of Jefferson's cab of Washington's cabinet, where he'd served, and then he had the model of being vice president in Adams's administration. He chose Washington. He said that, that Washington knew how to lead people, work effectively, be part of them, not distant, but not to, not to get involved in, in minor personal squabbles. So he drew up a, a circular to heads of department, marked and private, underlined capital letters, uh, which he distributed to the cabinet members. And in it, he said that he was going to set out the, these guidelines. If a letter came addressed to him and it didn't have anything really important, he would pass it on to them. If a letter came addressed to them and they didn't think that Jefferson needed to look at it, they should feel free to answer it on their own. Um, this he continued to do. He couldn't resist the chance in this memo to get a little dig in at Adams, whose, quote, long and habitual absences from the seat of government rendered this kind of communication impractical. Jefferson, in fact, drew up a chart, um, which I don't know that many people have seen, but it's in our next volume. He, he calculated how many days he had been absent at the beginning and end of Congress <laughs> and how many days Adams had been present and absent, and he came out with an average of 7.5 days absences for Jefferson and 14.2 absences for Adams. I mean, that's, that's Jefferson, who calculates, who can't, you know, who just can't let go of things. Early Cleometrics. Early Cleometrics. All right, so, so Jefferson developed a style of working with his cabinet, with, which was at once personal and a hidden hand. He kept touch with people in the Congress by, by having them for dinner, uh, by socializing. He, he frequently entertained members of Congress when Congress is, was in town, which was only three months a year. And he has very, very detailed lists of dinner guests. Uh, he kept this list of dinner guests until two days after he left the White House. In fact, he was still entertaining for the first two days of Madison's presidency. Now, if we're, if we're going to look at Jefferson's leadership, I mean, we really have to look at two case studies. Uh, three more minutes. Um, obviously, the great success of his leadership is the Louisiana Purchase of his first term. The great failure is the embargo. How, how is one to judge his leadership um, overall based on these two things? The embargo is a total failure. He was always wedded to economic coercion. All through the 90s, Jefferson was blinded by that. The Louisiana Purchase is an example of a presidential leader who can think outside the box, who, by the way, had enormous popular support for it, and he had enormous popular support after he left the presidency, after the embargo. The embargo is a great failure, but Jefferson was popular. His, his prime protege was elected president, so you can't say he failed as a presidential leader. James McGregor Burns says that Jefferson's success was just being Jefferson. The trouble with just being Jefferson was that it didn't work for Madison, it didn't work for his successors. It's a wonderful leadership style, 
But when you come to crunches like the embargo, it doesn't quite do it. Thank you. Morning. Uh, Barbara has, I think, gone to the heart of one of the many mysteries about Jefferson, why he was so much more successful a chief executive during his service as president than he had been a little more than two decades before as a wartime governor of Virginia. He was not fitted by nature to be a great administrator or man of action. He had not the tenth part of Alexander Hamilton's executive mastery. He was diffident and indecisive as governor, and it was uncharitably said of him that as governor he spent his time fiddling with his book, Notes on Virginia, while Virginia itself was being burned by the British. Twenty years later, Barbara shows, he had grown much more skillful, in part because he was more experienced. He had studied and profited, particularly, Barbara makes clear from the example of Washington. But it seems to me that he also, on some level, understood his own weaknesses better in this area, and, as Barbara demonstrates, was determined somehow to compensate for them. As governor of Virginia, he lost the sympathy of many in the Virginia legislature. As president, Barbara shows, he was quite determined to keep in touch with Congress and even to ply the lawmakers with good wine. Uh, Senator Plumer, a Federalist from New Hampshire, praised the champagne in the White House and said that he only wished the president's French politics were as good as his French wines. <laughs> and, you know, there really is a book someday to be written about Jefferson's politic use of wines. He, uh, he, he gets people to drink it up in his presence and say things that he can write down and that they'll later regret. Uh, <laughs> Now, of course, toward the end of his service, as Barbara noted, Jefferson began once again to indulge his bad habits. The embargo reveals him, I think it is worst as an executive leader, unrealistically visionary in his effort to develop an alternative to war, stubborn, out of touch with the people, particularly in New England, where blood is spilled in order to enforce the embargo. He made all the mistakes that he had so carefully avoided during his first term. The weather is false here are uniquely Jeffersonian or not as difficult to say given the, uh, given the fact that so many presidents in their second terms have, have, have slipped and grown careless. The great mystery to me is that Jefferson's presidency went as smoothly as it did with only one major extra-legal and extra-constitutional challenge to his authority, Burr's ineffectual conspiracy. I think it's difficult to say enough about how rare this quality of peaceableness in politics and in the transfer of power particularly was before the American Revolution. The English experience, which the founders were in some ways closest to, until 1688, until the time of their grandfathers, was pretty rough. A fall of a great figure of state outside the regular succession to the throne was almost always followed by a sanguinary prescription. Under the Tudors, the falls or failed attempts at opposition of Stanley, Perkin Warbeck, Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, Mary Queen of Scots, the Earl of, Sur the Earl of Surrey, Somerset, two Howards of Norfolk, Essex, these were all sealed with blood. By the 17th century in England, a great man might, he just might, escape with his life. Bacon did, 
and Hyde, as Earl Clarendon under Charles II, went into exile. But the rule, the rule before 1688, was that you paid for your fall or your failed attempt at opposition to power with your life. If you succeeded in your opposition, you executed those who had opposed you. Now, this changed all very quickly, very rapidly in England after 1688. And the Americans making their revolution did not depart from this salutary precedent. Many theories have been advanced as to why this should have been so. J.H. Plum, whose theory has been for a long time one of the prevailing explanations, argued in the growth of political stability after 1675 that there were three major factors to explain the newfound stability. One, the predominance of one party in the government. Two, the legislature firmly under executive control. And three, a common sense of identity in those who wielded economic, social, and political power. I'm skeptical of this explanation. That formula could as well explain the success of the Bath Order in Iraq or any authoritarian order as it does the Whig Order in England and the early order of the emerging American Republic. If there is an answer here, it would seem to me to lie in the Whig principles themselves. Somehow they helped men to break out of the vicious cycle of violence. Very basic things that we now take for granted, the rule of law, a government of laws and not men, a scrupulous respect for constitutional precedent, limited government, due process, the overhauling of the machinery for the prosecution of treason. Uh, And I myself am sort of tempted to resurrect the old and now largely discredited wing interpretation of history. In fact, it's got a lot going for it. But at all events, we need constantly to remind ourselves when we consider Jefferson's presidency that the American statesmen in the early revolutionary, in the early Republican period had always to look behind their backs, were always worried that something might go wrong with reversion to the pre-1688 pattern of bloodshed and of violence. Fisher Ames really did, I think, expect Jefferson to send Federalists to the gallows, to send Federalists to the gallows. Jefferson himself worried that the sedition legislation, the Federalists were using that to try and turn the clocks back. Jefferson, too, was always on the lookout not only for crypto-monarchists, as we've been discussing in some of the previous discussions, but also for crypto-Caesars. He later accused Alexander Hamilton of having told him, again, over wine, he (laughs) had the wine out at a big dinner in 1791, that the greatest man who ever lived was Julius Caesar. And Jefferson carefully wrote this down and saved the... uh, saved it. And both Hamilton and Jefferson identified Burr as a Catalinarian figure, an embryo Caesar. And yet, in spite of this, no blood was spilled, not even Burr's, who would without a doubt have been executed under any other regime that, uh, almost any other regime that had prevailed to that time. Now, of course, we know that Whigs like Jefferson like to think in terms of conspiracy. A good Whig is what we would today call paranoid always apprehensive about plots against liberty. But what seems paranoid to us was really quite prudent in that time and place. It is we who, never having witnessed the sanguinary prescription of a class or a party, it is we who enjoy what is rare and exceptional in history. A great English emigre historian of the British 18th century was once asked why he was attracted to the study of British history rather than his own. And he said that his people had no history, only a martyrology. We in America are fortunate to have a history and not a martyrology, and that's thanks in part to Jefferson and the other statesmen we're discussing today. Thank you.
I have the difficult task here of impersonating Peter Onuf, and those of you who know Peter will know how difficult that is. I've never wanted to be uh, an Elvis impersonator or an Onuf impersonator, so I will just read uh, his comments as best I can. Barbara Oberg con concludes with James McGregor Burns' provocative suggestion that Jefferson's main strategy of leadership was simply being Jefferson. My comments today will elaborate on Burns' insight, probing the ways Jefferson fashioned himself as a leader during his presidency. The larger point I take from uh, Barbara's paper is that Jefferson was at his best when he was most comfortable, when he could be plain, insinuating, persuasive, or to borrow Fred Greenstein's elegant formulation, when he could lead without appearing to lead. Barbara rightly focuses on the great crises that define Jefferson's two administrations, the Louisiana Purchase, a triumphant vindication of his leadership style, and the Embargo, a policy disaster that revealed his limitations as a leader. There is, of course, a real danger of circularity when we assert that Jefferson was being Jefferson when he led effectively. As the vast literature on Jefferson suggests, it is by no means clear who exactly the supposedly sphinx-like Jefferson was. Critics and defenders variously describe him as a deeply flawed hypocrite, hiding beneath a dizzying array of poses and personae, or as an authentic Democrat, a man of sentiment and feeling, with a precocious sensitivity to the will of the people. But I, Peter, tend to think <laughs> that the differences in these critical evaluations are much exaggerated. Jefferson was most comfortable, most authentically himself, in acting with and through his friends, like-minded coadjutors in sustaining and redeeming the legacy of the American Revolution. Let's start with Jefferson's frequently professed hostility to politics, not, one would think, a strong qualification for leadership. Jefferson was legendarily thin-skinned and reluctant to actively promote his own political agenda. Most revealingly, the master wordsmith was unwilling to wield his pen, to put his name on the line as a polemicist for the Republican cause. As Rob McDonald has persuasively argued, Jefferson's above the partisan fray, above the partisan fray pose enabled his followers to craft an image of their hero as the principled patriot, the author of the Declaration of Independence, and conscientious custodian of the principles of 76. Jefferson's aversion to conflict was a potent part of the symbolic package. The party leader was no partisan. But how can a symbol govern? How did Jefferson begin to think like a president? Barbara makes a compelling case for Jefferson's emergence as a leader, contrasting his passivity in 1796 with his more aggressive, somewhat paranoid posture in 1800, as he guided and advised his political allies strategically and anxiously monitored the series of state elections that constituted the presidential campaign. I would suggest that the prophetic Jefferson grew increasingly comfortable in his role as Adams', Adams heir apparent. Jan Lewis, I didn't write this, I'm really reading, I am reading from this. Jan Lewis tells us that Jefferson's alleged aversion to politics was more like ambivalence. His idealized image of his loving family provided crucial psychic consolation throughout his long political career but family life for this Virginia patriarch was clearly insufficient, and his attraction to power always in the end proved irresistible. The real Jefferson was deeply conflicted, torn between the comforts of home and the seductions of political power. To the extent that Jefferson could resolve or transcend this character-defining tension, he could be himself. 
The metaphorical journey from Monticello to the White House took Jefferson from splendid isolation into the very heart of Republican society, into an intimate union with like-minded patriots. This dialectic of retreat and engagement mirrored in a political philosophy that simultaneously celebrated individual rights and a transcendent communion of the virtuous and the enlightened characterized Jefferson's entire career. His ascension to the presidency finally enabled him to fulfill a Republican fantasy of representing the American people and being himself. The first inaugural address is usually seen as conciliatory, a conciliatory gesture toward vanquished Federalists, uh, or perhaps as a rhetorical effort to isolate and, ice, uh, and ostracize high Federalist traitors to the Federal and Republican principles that constituted Jefferson's uh, political creed. But we can also see it as the culmination of Jefferson's campaign, dating from the darkest days of the reign of the witches to persuade himself that he was the people's true representative. Machinations in Congress during the Jefferson-Byrd electoral impasse in February 1801 reinforced Jefferson's belief in his direct, unmediated relationship with his countrymen. After all, the constituted authorities, the lame duck, the lame duck Federalist dominated Sixth Congress, who supposedly represented the people, had threatened to steal the election and defy their mandate. In his inaugural, Jefferson projected his own political principles onto the American people as a whole. We might even say that Jefferson invented or imagined a people that he could lead, or rather would lead themselves through his agency. Jefferson and the people are thus reciprocally constitutive. A similar legere domain is apparent in the Declaration of Independence. And as, as Andy Trees has shown, Jefferson's profession of political faith in his letter to Elbridge Gerry Part of his campaign to recruit moderate Federalists into the Republican camp was transmuted into a supposedly transpartisan creed with Jefferson's rise to power, the wish prophecy, uh, rise, to, rise to power, um, having problems reading, uh, don't know where the pauses are. He needs, it has to be like a declaration with the pauses inserted. Uh, with Jefferson's rise to power, the wish prophecy might be too strong a word, expressed in the Jefferson letter, was suddenly miraculously transformed into reality. Jefferson imagined a more perfect union of American hearts and minds, eschewing the instruments of command and coercion that Federalists began to wield during the Quasi War. The American government, based on principles of consent and cemented by common sentiments and interests, would emerge as the strongest government on earth. Of course, this high-sounding rhetoric did not describe the actual lay of the political landscape nor was it clear how Jefferson would tap the awesome power of popular sovereignty. Here I think Barbara's contribution is invaluable. Jefferson's two most trusted advisors, uh, James Madison and Ga Albert Gallatin, played a crucial role in reassuring him of his Republican soundness, that he in fact spoke for the people. These intimately personal political friends had fully internalized Jefferson's own values and could thus reinforce his conviction that the, these values were not merely personal. Echoing Jefferson, these advisors sim simultaneously ventriloquized the past. In short, Jefferson's friendship with his lieutenants mystified his leadership, underscoring the identification with the American public that Barbara rightly emphasizes. The conflation of Jefferson and the people also depersonalized his rule, enabling the virtuous Republican to eschew the unbridled 
partial irresponsible executive authority of the despotic old regime. The unquestioned loyalty of Jefferson's subordinates made an intrusively directive style of leadership unnecessary. But such loyalty could hardly be assured beyond the inner circle, among ambitious Republicans Jefferson often hardly knew. Barber shows how Jefferson solved the problem of trustworthiness and regularity in organizing his larger cabinet. His circular, circular order of uh, November 1801 set up procedures that guaranteed good behavior and preempted ministerial turf wars, directing all executive correspondence to throw through, flow through his secretaries, um, by directing all correspondence through his secretaries. But of course, once the secretaries were suitably socialized and Jefferson was assured that his administration would speak with a single unified voice, he could relax his vigilance. In compensation for this apparent self-effacement, department heads enjoyed a high degree of operational autonomy within their respective spheres. The upward flow of correspondence institutionalized the line of command, but disguised it in routine bureaucratic procedure and in a mode of communication that emphasized the Republican equality of correspondence. Jefferson's leadership was to a large extent mediated through correspondence or its face-to-face -face equivalent conversation. Through his far-flung correspondence, Jefferson could listen to the extraordinary cacophony of individual gabble distilling from it the people's voice, but he could also, to quote Fred Greenstein again, instruct while seeming to suggest to guide without seeming to defer. This artful manipulation of voices in Jefferson's Republic of Leaders was the secret of his success. Exchanges among like-minded political friends from the lowliest voter to the most powerful and influential statesman could sustain the Republican fiction of independence and equality and autonomy while securing Jefferson a well-organized, harmonious administration that was extraordinarily responsive to his leadership. Jefferson dispensed with weekly cabinet meetings, Barber tells us, thus minimizing conflict and collusion among his subordinates. The formula yet again was to unite by dividing. Department heads' primary relationship was with Jefferson, not with cabinet colleagues. If secretaries were thus less likely to combine to influence, uh, they were also secure against the kind of humiliation Jefferson experienced in Washington's cabinet when Alexander Hamilton's treasury encroached so egregiously on Jefferson's State Department. The cabinet thus does not provide the prime site for socializing politic, politicking that congressmen found at Jefferson's dinner table. These famous dinners strengthened bonds between Republican congressmen and the administration while neutralizing, uh, or at least blunting the edge of hostile federal, Federalist partisans. Strengthening the link, between, the link between the executive and legislative served simultaneously to limit, though not altogether preempt, the emergence of independent, ostensibly Republican factions based in Congress. Of course, high turnover in Congress also mitigated against independent party development in Congress, as did the tenuous um, links among the highly volatile Republican factions in the states. Barber concludes with the Louisiana Purchase and the Embargo, touchstones of Jefferson's successive administrations and emblematic of his success and failure as a leader. Jefferson played a brilliant waiting game, taking the crucial steps necessary to seize the prize when the opportunity arose. He did not hesitate to act under a broad understanding of executive power, shaping more by the law of nations, the first law of nature itself is preservation, than by strict adherence to the Constitution. Jefferson's embarrassed scruples about the constitutionality of the purchase came after the fact and could have led to political disaster. 
But in this case, the President followed the lead of wiser heads in his cabinet and in Congress who recognized the administration's vulnerability. Jefferson's embargo represented another bold exercise of executive power in what proved to be a fruitless and counterproductive effort to avoid war. The problem was that the enforcement of the embargo meant that the administration had to resort to the kind of powers in peacetime that could only be justified in state of war, thus stretching and exceeding the limits of legitimate authority and draining away the president's store of accumulated influence. Jefferson failed to calculate political consequences because he was so sure that he spoke for the real interests of the people. The very success of his administration reinforced Jefferson's sense of righteousness and the infallibility of his judgment. Thomas Jefferson's success as a leader followed from this self-effacing solipsism. I am the people. I am merely the voice of the people. In his first term and well into his second, Jefferson effectively tapped into a reservoir of popular patriotism. Governing lightly but efficiently, Jefferson gave a widening circle of followers the opportunity to coalesce around his political creed, the political principles that would define the American regime through the antebellum years. But of course, that coalescence was never as complete as Jefferson imagined, and he discovered in attempting to enforce an embargo that, in the view of many affected Americans, violated the very principles of limited constitutional government that Jefferson himself espoused. By the end of his second term, Jefferson could no longer simply be Jefferson. As he, as he just hung on, the formula that had once worked so brilliantly, the identification of the popular president with the people, failed disastrously. Yet again, Monticello, the site of comfort and convenience, promised refuge for the embattled and embittered Jefferson, exemplar of Republican leadership, for better and for worse. Thank you very much for being here. Reading in someone else's voice is hard, is hard work, even if you don't attempt to uh, uh, also duplicate their personal mannerisms, which I gather are, are quite vivid in the case of, of, of Peter's. The, uh, um, so you've had three presentations which focus very much on the Jefferson and the capacity of the title of this conference, namely as, uh, uh, as leader. I'll borrow uh, some time from the break, uh, but this will give, in the short run, it will give short shrift uh, to the sage of, of Monticello, but we'll have... Uh, we will have that final session. So uh, questions, um, comments, and we'll go till perhaps a minute or two after, 10 after, then take a, uh, then take a break and reconvene for the Madison session at, uh, at, 11, at 11.30 with the safety valve at the, far, at the far end and over the box lunches and so on. So the floor is open. Uh, yes. You think he Why focusing on economic coercion rather than why so opposed to fighting? Is that the 
We're talking about the Napoleonic War. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I, I think he lived through a war, and uh, having seen it, I think he had a real aversion to it. But uh, I also think you know there is a utopian side to Jefferson, very visionary, and I think what's admirable about him in the presidency is that he restrains that impulse uh, for the most part and really looks at things through his sort of common sense uh, lens. But in the embargo, the visionary impulse takes over. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Twisted himself over knots to uh, to justify what he couldn't justify and went ahead and did it. Yeah, I guess it was a victory of common sense. But I guess it was sort of the victory of common sense. I suppose, yeah, I think that. It, I mean, this is one of the areas where I think his leadership is so brilliantly demonstrated. Uh, but but actually, what he's doing is following John Locke's theory of leadership. That is, the leader has to be able to to see flexibility and has to see opportunities. So it's, it's not that Jefferson totally changed everything to do this. I mean, it was part of the, the view he had of, of an executive leadership. It's also important, um, as Arthur Schlesinger pointed out, it's also important to see that he wasn't doing it against the will of the people. You know, I mean, this is something that was affirmed by Congress. This was a very, very popular act. Uh, in which he engaged. Yes, sir. What, distributing pamphlets. I'd have to say that I don't think it's as developed a sense of public opinion as Madison's. I think he's groping at it. I think that he sees it in a, in a much more local and individualized way. I mean, he starts out really doing, doing some of this politicking through his family, his two sons-in-laws. He, he tries out ideas on them. So I think he's moving toward Madison's sophisticated understanding, but he's not there yet. Yes. I'm curious, I mean, we talked about the longer story about Louisiana. I think in some ways it, it, it's a more complicated Jefferson emerges because the longer story, the person who comes before me is Jefferson's slave boy, terrified. 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a very, very good point to bring up. I mean, Jefferson, obviously, Jefferson didn't know what to do about slavery. He, you know, he has a sense at one point if, this, if, if you can kind of distribute it more geographically, that will somehow magically solve it. Jefferson's attitude toward, toward San Domingue and Haiti is, is, is most unfortunate. Were you pointing to? <laughs> that's an obligato to your presentation. Right, Elizabeth right. Marvard. It's true. Burr owes his neck to Marshall, not to Jefferson. That's very and true. that wasn't the only political enemy who said he would have had You're hearing, we're hearing. <laughs> well, what, and what he also um, said to, what Madison also said to Jefferson is, you know, the, the way political gossip operates, and, and Joanne Freeman has written at length about this, he already knows those good things about you anyway. I mean, they, they could sneak letters to the people they wanted to convey certain information to. Um, oh, yeah, disingenuous is uh, absolutely uh, Jefferson's a master being disingenuous. Well, with that Gordon, exchange... Gordon had one, but we uh, Okay, I'll get Gordon and... I wanted to make the observation that Elizabeth Marvick is a in her field of, of French studies is a well-known psychobiographer, so you're getting a little bit of uh, That's good. the Viennese saying. Jefferson is question. a wonderful subject for psychobiography. Jordan, the, last, the last word or the last question at the case was. Okay, well, let's, okay, two, this lady and then. Uh, Quotation about our, go our government is founded in jealousy, not yeah, confidence. Yeah. Um, sure. No, I don't. I can look it up. Well, I write it to my grandson. Well, it's a great quotation. Well, you, well, I well, think well, whatever year he said it, the belief I think held true throughout. Yes. Email the director of. Email, email, me. email the director of the. I'll do a word search. Good. Good. Use the World Wide Web. You have the last.
Well, let's make that a, a transitional link to the session on, uh, on Madison. And I would say let's reassemble at about, uh, uh, at about uh, 11.35.